think is the Pali and something meta sutra sutra, they're very small distinguish distinctions I think between those languages. So sutta is I believe Pali for sutra. And there's probably kind of an H sound in there. Gary Gareth or Terry might know. So let's do this without benefit of the accompaniment of drums or gongs. I'll chant it all together. Let's wait for the tea people to come back. Just read through it and familiarize yourself with it a little bit. This is chanted in the morning meditation, I believe, on um, Thursdays. I think it's on Thursday. There's a home practice book that has these in it if anybody's interested in doing this at home. And that's what we follow in the Monday service. So every day there's a different chant. It's very brief so that people can get to work. Okay, ready? So we'll just chant this, uh, recite it basically. Loving Kindness Sutra, Sutra, Metasutta. This is what may be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good, and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise. Let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in higher, middle, or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive one another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one cherish the thought that this way of living is the best in the world, abandoning vain discussion, having a clear vision, freed from sense appetites, one who realizes the way will never again go rebirth in the cycle of creation of suffering for ourselves or for others. So anything stand out for you you'd like to question? Why would you mind moving over? I keep dodging around the call. <laughs> I'm going to get whiplash. Anything stand out that you want to point out to others? <coughs> Say it again. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, I just came across. <laughs> I just came across and sent to Steve Hart a comment on uh, uh, Matsu's uh, Basso in Japanese comment about the sitting to make a Buddha. And the way it's phrased in English, it doesn't mean that sitting is a waste of time, is the point that this commentator is making. It's on the internet. So I forward that to Steve. Similarly here, I think it's the way this is phrased is really very clear, and it doesn't say what we might think it says. So if you, if you look at it, what it is actually saying is that 
The one who realizes the way will never again know rebirth in the cycle of creation of suffering for ourselves or for others. That doesn't mean that one will never know rebirth. It means that one will never know rebirth into the cycle of creation of suffering for ourselves and others. One may be reborn as a bodhisattva, but that's not in, that's not in the cycle. A bodhisattva is reborn intentionally for the sake of all others. So that's what you're pointing out, right? <laughs> it's a very clever use of, of English here to say that the way they said it. Anything else on that? Or I should say skillful. Uh, I'd like to call attention to the line in the paragraph just before that stands just before that, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. Uh, so this is pointing at the issue that uh, awakening is not tied to zazen. You cannot establish a cause-effect relationship between meditation and, and spiritual awakening in Buddhism. Even though Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree and had resorted to this one central, simple practice uh, in his hour of desperation or, or need. And uh, we, we think, uh, Bodhidharma, for instance, said you do not have to practice Zazen, you just have to grasp the vital principle. But it turns out, of course, to grasp the vital principle, most of us need to practice Zazen. Because Zazen is a process of subtraction, it's a process of getting rid of our confusion and delusion. It's not a cause-effect relationship with awakening, but what is in the way, what's in our way, is our own ignorance. <coughs> so Zazen is the process by which we relinquish our own opinions and ideas. And what has to be left at the bottom of that is what can lead to awakening. Once, once we have divested ourselves of all, or disabused ourselves of all of our confusion and ideas about this, then it's possible for us to wake up. So it's not a cause-effect relationship exactly. It's a little like setting up the orchestra Right? You have to set up the orchestra, but that isn't what makes the music. <laughs> so any further questions on yes? Oh, I thought it was noteworthy that uh, let one not desire great possessions even if one's standing. Yeah. This is especially true nowadays we see this uh, the or perception at least of what's going on out there is people are hoarding money to themselves. And the, the rationale for it is often I want to bequeath this to my family, and then we have some wealthy, very, very wealthy people who give all their money away specifically not to let their children inherit it, because they think it will destroy their lives. So this is, um, but it doesn't say that one not desire possessions, period. It just says not great wealth, great possessions, moderation, you know, balance. So Buddhism has always been lay practice, and that's the strongest form we think for the future. I mean, my teacher did, and I do too. And, uh, you know, possessions are a burden. You have to deal with owning a home that gets blown over by a tornado. You have to get keep two cars or one car on the road, you know, and it's breaking down all the time. And you have to deal with children going to college and so forth. And so, uh, lay practice has always been recognized as, as much more difficult than monastic practice. Any other comments or questions? Okay. This is my brain on paper. <coughs> You're welcome to keep that if you want to take it home.
in some of the what's been called a lively dialogue that we've had going on here recently at the Zen Center, which I'm not going to comment on today, <laughs> the, this expression, perception is reality, came up a few times. And I got to thinking about it. And uh, I used to, when I worked for a, a relatively large design company, a $40 million company, that was often said, perception is reality. And it was used as a way of selling our services to a client. And we'd say, it doesn't matter what you management people think. It's what your customer thinks that's important. It's their perception of whether it's true or not. And so my job consisted largely of, of showing them how their, in many cases, retail stores, other, I did exhibit design and three-dimensional things of that nature. But in particular, retail stores, they're very, and by the way, this won't be very long today. We'll stop at least by 1130. Have questions and answers as long as you like. Uh, in retail stores, uh, they have a lot of, uh, especially large national chains, which chains, which I work for, they have an awful lot of investment and uh, management structure and trying to figure out what works because the competition is, is very sharp. As you know, Home Depot came in and wiped out nearly every other home center, for instance. And I worked for a lot of home centers that were trying to survive that onslaught. So one of the pitches is that the way you think you're being perceived by your customer is not the way you're being perceived at all, especially not compared to your competition. So I'd photograph the stores and I'd give a slide presentation and I'd show them their, what we thought were their problem areas where they weren't communicating, where perception is not now a reality because your best kept secrets are still secret. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knows it, right? So I got to thinking about that, that in, in business, uh, and at least in, in our profession of trying to make a customer communication better and so on, perception was definitely not reality. And uh, when I got to thinking about Zen, uh, we start with the premise that perception is not reality. If perception were reality, we'd all be enlightened. I mean, we'd all be awakened. We'd all have this insight already. And in fact, our perception is primarily what gets in the way of our awakening. Uh, and it gets, in the middle skanda, it's tied with uh, conception. So the, the five skandhas, these are called, skanda means something like a heap, a pile of stuff that can be separated from another heap, right? They're somewhat distinct from each other, but they're all really part of the same thing. They cannot be absolutely separated. So it begins with form, as we, as we chant in this small sutra we chant, form or the material world, which of course Buddhism posits is, is actually emptiness. You cannot separate from emptiness. This is the first conundrum, that each of these has a dual. Each of these is not as we perceive it. So form is not as we perceive it, but nonetheless, it's said to be this first skanda. We all sit in form to begin with, the material world. It's a being in the environment. That's form, right? Then uh, sensation, uh, feeling. When we sit, our feeling changes. We begin to adapt, and sometimes we have pain, sometimes we have numbness, and nonetheless, uh, how our sensations are operating begins to change. Then as we enter into, say, or if we look at the third skanda in the middle, I call it the middle skanda, perception is tied to conception. So often the way we perceive, we have learned uh, from childhood on. We have learned to conceive of everything, or perceive everything. We now perceive that as a wooden column made from, uh, because I happen to know it's made from Douglas fir. Okay. So I have a lot of ways of perceiving that because I help build, design, and build, and install these things. 
all of those perceptions are false. We have absolutely no idea what that is. So, uh, but as a child, and that's the way you are as a child, you know what, you don't know what anything is, right? But then your parents tell you, your teachers tell you, your, your, your siblings tell you, your peers tell you. And so you build this world where you think you know know it all, you know everything. <laughs> and the wonder that you had where you didn't know anything slowly ebbs away and you're living in a world where you think you know everything. So conception gets mixed up with perception and begins to affect our perception sometimes negatively and sometimes in in, uh, in ways if, if we've had traumatic experiences, we can have unreasoning fear, anxieties, right? Uh, we can attribute certain things to people's behavior that are not necessarily there. So it gets very, very confusing there. Part of that is what is called formations, the fourth skanda. And formations is a, is a, a very odd one that's probably unique to Buddhism, but it also has a sort of a parallel in psychology. It's kind of like the, what is this, id, the ego and the superego, or something. I guess it would be the id. It's like the unconscious or the pre-conscious, the subliminal mind, that part of our being that is tied to karma, uh, DNA, everything, all the impulses. It's called impulse, motive. What are some of the other words for formation? Desire? Memory. Sometimes memory, yeah. It has all of these components to it because it has every level of your mental categories uh, that you can name is associated with it. So then the last one being consciousness being the overriding. So wh where we are today in that spectrum of five skandhas, which are all interrelated, is we're looking at what is called perception. So perception cannot be separated from the other skandhas cannot be separated from the other dimensions of our life. And this is where uh, we get into trouble when we rely 100% on, on our own perception and we think our perception is accurate. So um, starting from there, I'd like to look at this from a few uh, perspectives, global, personal, the community, maybe community after global and personal, and then maybe just bring it down to, to Zen as our practice here at the center. From a global perspective, we look at uh, the things that are happening around the world that we mentioned this morning, like the natural disasters of tornadoes and the man-made disasters of Chernobyl and the nuclear plants that were triggered really by a natural disaster. Uh, and we think, if, if we look at that model, we all know, I think we all know, that our perception of what is going on there in Iraq, in Afghanistan, etc., our perception definitely is not reality, right? Our perception is what we see on the screen, what we hear on the radio, or read in the newspaper, and we know that that's several <laughs> dimensions removed from what is actually happening there. And if we go over there and we get immersed, uh, enmeshed in the in the battle, and the conflict, and the politics, and so forth, we know that our perception is still not going to be very close to reality. Maybe after we've been there for 10 or 20 years and we know the language and we know all of the ins and outs of what's going on, right? Then we might be approximating or getting closer to our understanding and, and perception and conception of what is going on to be closer to, to, to the reality. Uh, but uh, from this remove, we know that it's, it's filtered and changed through all of these levels of what you might call translation or, or 
news reporting and, and the objectives of the news organizations, the biases that are built in, so forth. <coughs> and everybody is just bludgeoned to death these days with what I call a cultural conflict, where rant radio and the politics is nothing but, uh, an, as it's called, an echo chamber of, of propaganda back and forth and uh, sort of tell the big lie enough, you know, and then everybody believes it to be true. And so that, I, I, I think one of our special uh, forms of suffering that we have that was not true as to this degree, could not have been true to this degree in India, China, Japan, uh, of the past history of Buddhism is this deluge of information, most of which is propaganda, most of which is biased intentionally. And so, you know, we're just badgered and beleaguered by it. I asked Okamura Roshi about it, about the news, and probably he said, I don't understand it. So I don't, I don't even follow it. I, I can't understand it. <laughs> so uh, if we take that as a truth and we can see how that works, then we can begin to embrace and accept more the Buddhist idea that that's what our senses are doing. That is, our senses are protecting this self. The senses are protecting the self in a survival sense. That it, we need to know the difference between a poison mushroom and an edible mushroom, so we learn that difference. We can tell the one with a little skirt on it is the poison one, even though they're twins otherwise. We can tell if somebody's sitting still or charging us or running the other way. Um, we can tell by sound if the sound is, is too close and too loud to be dangerous, like a railroad train, right, etc. So all of our senses are keyed and geared that way, essentially for our own survival, for the survival of this, this being and self. And so naturally they are biased in our favor. And so when it comes to uh, uh, these global issues, uh, at a certain point you just numb out, you know, you can't handle anymore. And so you, to, to, to save your own sanity, to preserve yourself, you just stop caring, you stop listening, you can't, you know, it's nothing you can do about it anyway, from, that's the way we think about this. Of course, there's plenty of things you can do. You can actually go over there and, you know, get a job as a reporter or whatever, and go over there and try to do something if it's that important to you. But there's another one just down the block over here, and there's another one over there. So you can't stamp out all the fires. As Billy Joe said, we didn't start the fire. So let me stop there and see if anybody has anything to say because I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Is Wisconsin facing anything? The what? Wisconsin, is that what you call them? Mm -hmm. Are those, are those um, designated all to the five aggregates? Aggregates, yeah. Oh, they're the same. Yeah, like a stone aggregate, an aggregate stone is not one thing, it's an aggregate of all these different things. And then, well, you know, sealed, healed together by heat. That's why it's called an aggregate. So almost any anything that we <coughs> that we point to is an aggregate of something. Even the smallest atom is an aggregate of other particles, and the nucleus is an aggregate of quarks and so forth. So it's almost you could say there isn't anything that is not aggregated. But these are the five fundamental ones that a sentient being. The way it's in, the, in the, those days in India, it made sense to divide <coughs> to divide reality into these five uh, because they're distinctly different enough and 
and the Shringama Sutra, these are the five that Buddha talks about sort of going through as a succession or a progression from form to feeling to perception to formation and finally to consciousness so that we're eventually sitting in consciousness only and all the others have since fallen away. That's it's, So it's used that way too. Makes sense? Anything else on skandhas or aggregates? Fundamental teaching, right? It's a basic Buddhist teaching. Now we're more sophisticated today. You know, we can slice and dice reality in, in a million ways. And when you go into each aggregate, you find that it's got all these finer, finer distinctions within it. But all of those distinctions are empty. Right? Empty of self-existence, okay. but it doesn't mean they're not real. Right. They are interdependent. Right? Interdependent, yeah. Mm -hmm. They depend on each other for their, even for our way of recognizing them. So this is all dualistic thinking. This is a dualistic analysis of reality. So uh, in emptiness, these five aggregates cannot exist as self-existent entities. This is the first line of the sutras. Avalokitesvara saw uh, clearly that they, all five aggregates are empty and of self-essence. So this is a very liberating uh, idea. And it goes on to say, so in emptiness also, no seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. The senses are part of the aggregates. And so they don't exist 100% in the way we think they do either. And so this is where our meditation practice becomes sensory unlearning. We we sit and we pay attention to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, until they all change. And as they all change, we begin to see the other side of them. You might say we begin to see the empty side of the senses themselves. Would you agree with this saying? I, I don't know. I, I was going to ask you this, but one of my friends told me everything makes everything. <laughs> Codependent origination or arising, interdependent. I'm uh, Okamura Roshi Point. I said, I'm teaching, I'm here as a Zen teacher because you're here as Zen students. If you weren't here, then I'm not here as a Zen teacher. When I go home, I'm not a Zen teacher. <laughs> Whatever I am there, so forth. I think the um, problem with the, the interdependence thing is that it, it, if you look deeper, I guess, deeper into this thing, you realize that there is, there's not, there's no thing there to, to interdepend on in the first place. I mean, so it, it, it kind of confuses a little bit, you know, when you say that something interdependent mm -hmm. implies that there are things that are interconnected, but if there's no thing in the first mm -hmm. place, there's nothing to be yeah. interdependent on. But see, that's where we have to be careful. It's not saying that there's no thing in the sense that this does not exist. This clearly exists. So, you know, I, I can then make the argument about myself and I can explain myself out of existence. This is absurd. Uh, so, but this, this only exists as a book because we exist as human beings to read it. If we're not here to read this, this is, this is what it is, but it doesn't make sense to call it a book anymore or anything else. And if we analyze what it is, the paper that's made of coming from the trees and the et cetera, et cetera, and the ink comes from, who knows where the ink comes from, but wherever it comes from, we can see that this existed in some other form before it was transformed into this book by the print production process. And at some point in the future, all this will decay and will be something else. So that's, that's one of the meanings of emptiness, is it's, this dynamic, it's a dynamic process. 
dukkha is uh, change. And we're caught up in change. But we have this perception of things. Right? We have a perception that this is a thing. And so the, the question in Buddhism is not whether or not this actually exists. It's more how does this exist? How is more of a scientific, scientific question than an absolutist argument as to whether this does or does not exist. It doesn't make any sense to claim that this does not exist. But then when we assert that this exists absolutely, we've gone too far. Is this without substantiality? It's like a yeah. rainbow. On a rainbow, you see it, so then you get closer. It yeah. A cloud. My Dharma in Thailand is a great cloud. A cloud exists, but look at what it really is. I mean, and a mountain, as you sometimes you see a mountain from one side, and it's a, it's this mountain peak. You can see Mount Everest. But when you turn it from this side, you see it's part of a ridge. <coughs> so, <coughs> everybody clear so far on that? So, uh, if you go from the global, where we can see that it's at such a distance, naturally our perception is going to be skewed by all the intermediary media. Then when we go to community, it's similar here. When we come here, or when you have the community of Atlanta, for instance. Uh, I've driven around a few neighborhoods that I used to frequent, and they're completely different. I can't even tell where I am anymore sometimes. I mean, and so our image you know, of Atlanta right, as, a, as an entity or as a reality cannot possibly match the reality, unless we were floating up above it, I guess, and watching it all the time, because it's constantly changing. Uh, same thing for any community, including the Zen Center. So our perception of it is kind of like a snapshot, and it is informed by what we carry in with us when we come in, our baggage, so to say. We've heard about Zen communities. We expect them to be a certain way, right? We've been here before. We expect it to stay the same. Maybe. Or we've been here, we don't like it, we expect it to change. We want it to change. So this kind of engagement is natural, but w at some point we have to suspend our perception, uh, that is our judgment at least, in order to open up to the possibility that it is not what we think it is. Right? And it could be something worse or better, depending on what we want, depending on our value judgment. So if you think of it, uh, if we can just skip over the community level for now for, uh, and think of it on a personal level, think about your job, your family, your friends, and yourself, your image of yourself. You know, These are all subject to perception as well, right? I mean, you have a lot of uh, things, characteristics of your personality you could talk about uh, that you, if you're introducing yourself to a girlfriend, boyfriend, or something, uh, or a job interview you might want to be able to talk clearly about. And those are all perceptions that you want this other person to have of you, but they're also perceptions that you want to have of you. Usually we don't want to talk about the part that would not make us attractive to somebody else. <laughs> That's why the Japanese or the Chinese refer to this as a stinking skin sack <laughs> in an effort to distance ourselves from our own uh, enamored embrace <laughs> of ourselves. It's a stinking skin sack. It's full of pus, bile, phlegm, rotting food, etc., etc., on and on and on, you know. So when you fall in love with somebody, you have to do a serious level 
of what's it called when you watch a movie? You know, sus what is it? Suspension of disbelief, right? In order to buy into the story, you have to see only the things that are attractive. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but look at your job and look at your relationship at work. You know, sometimes these things come up in Dokusan a lot, and you have a perception of your job, and you have a perception of your relationship to it, right? And you have a perception of the other people at your job, and you have a perception of how your job fits to your life, and whether you're happy with your job or not, right? And if you're not happy with it, you have a definite perceptions and conceptions about why you're not happy with it which may not fit the reality. <laughs> if, if there was a switch thrown somewhere, you may be very happy with that job. Who knows? You know, who, so how do we know that it's not simply perception and our conception that is making us miserable? And actually, we have the best of all possible Pankwalsian worlds, right? It couldn't get any better, actually. And yet our perception says, this stinks. <laughs> I need something else. Perception is getting glommed into conception when we're imagining something else, when we're imagining the future, right? Planning, you know. So the job, the family, you know, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your family, but I had a pretty rough relationship with my father, and I have a wonderful relationship with my siblings, the ones who are surviving. And my mother was a really funny relationship. Uh, grandparents. My children, kind of a train wreck there, uh, although seems to be getting better. Friends, you know, in my position or my perspective on things, I don't have any friends, exactly. Uh, what we have at the Zen community, we call Kalyanamitra good friends, meaning friends who are interested in Dharma. They're not interested in having a beer or seducing you or getting your money <laughs> or something else, right? They're, they're just interested in pursuing what we're pursuing here, and if they're a good friend of you, they're interested in your pursuit of this as well as their own. So that's a very special kind of friend. And in this situation, I'm in the unfortunate position of being the leader here. And so I can't afford to have friendships within the community. And sometimes I'm not even nice to people. I can't be. Uh, that's, that's my role as I see it. So <laughs> friends and then the self, you know, and I certainly have a perception of myself. Uh, one of my senior disciples many, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, John Cooper. I don't know if you knew John. John Cooper? I think you did. He came into Dokusan one time. He said, they, they called me Mickey at the time. Nobody called me since then. He said, Mickey, I, I said, I, I think you enjoy this too much. <laughs> I said, well, well, of course I do. We're spreading the Dharma, you know. We're he said, no, no. He said, I mean something uglier than that. So I said, John, and I'm going to say something very crude here because it comes from my hometown, and I'm going to share it with you. I said, John, if you mean that you think you can get the self out of it, I think you're doomed to disappointment. So we have this joke in my hometown, and all of the jokes in my hometown are very crude. And they say there, they say, well, what do you do to sterilize a turd? You wash all the shit out of it. <laughs> That's the joke. So. I don't think we can wash all the self out of this. I just don't think it can be done. We have these ideas, you know, the Buddha was absolutely selfless, right? And yet his cousin, Devadatta, tried to kill him, tried to assassinate him. 
we have this idea that Dogen was selfless and, and the community was so wonderfully harmonious. As soon as he died, it's completely splintered into factions, completely fell apart because of all the competing tensions and underlying whatever that wasn't being in our psychological way of looking at things. These things weren't being handled well. <laughs> well, BS. They're just there, you know, get used to it. So, but nonetheless, I have this perception of myself, which I'm sure is very distorted. And so when I sit in Zazen, fortunately, that falls away and I get free of that. And it's very, very liberating feeling. So maybe each of you would like to say a little bit something about the personal level here of your perception of your job, your family, your friends, yourself. This is not confessional. <laughs> we don't have a little door. <laughs> I'd like some more tea if I can confess to that if anybody's up for that. Do we have a pot you can just bring that? Bring the pot. Oh, yeah, just bring the pot. Thank you. So what about it? Job, is that big in your life? Or friends big? And when you say friends, you could say uh, lovers, mates, relationships. I think one's self-perception perception is so dictated by how other people react. <laughs> how they react to you? Yeah, uh, in terms of uh, you know, someone tells you you're a turd and all of a sudden you know, uh, yeah. it affects you even though it may not be true. Yeah. So, yeah. Or do you suspect it's true all along? <laughs> So it comes from two places, within and without, I guess. So there's this constant uh, going back and forth in perception. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something you just said about when you're in Zazen and the, the perception, or I guess the perception of the self falls away, which is a good thing. I mean, is that, and obviously, so when you leave, you're not going to go back to wherever you are comes back. Yeah, yeah. So that means it's a bad thing, right? You know, or how do you? I don't think so. I think it's just one thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that that question reminds me. Always reminds me that kind of question of uh, Rinzai had a saying. He said, "Above this mass of reddish flesh resides, and this is a translation, so resides a true person of no status, constantly coming and going through the six portals, meaning the six senses." So this so-called self is this sort of yin-yang thing. It's here, and the, but it's not here. And then it's here again, and then it's not here. And it's here, and it's not here. Right? And we can't, we can't pin it down. We can't grab it. We can't catch it. We can't get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> the other expression is uh, Matsuoka Roshi said, and I came across this in a, in a, in a book I've been reading. So I think it's an old Chinese source. He didn't attribute these things. He would just say them. You know, said Zen is like swallowing a red-hot iron ball, molten iron. You get stuck in your throat. You can't swallow it, and but you also now can't spit it out. So you get caught on the horns of this dilemma of of yin yang, form is emptiness, self other, no self, no other, and you see it vacillating back and forth in your life. When you're threatened, or when you feel threatened, and you react. You know, then you see it come out very strongly inside of self. At other times, when you, when you, if, and even when you're threatened enough, where you feel in danger of your life, sometimes the body chemistry and everything takes over to where you don't really feel the self anymore. If you're running away from, running away from a threat, for instance, 
as we were saying last week, Nagar's here now used this illustration to point out the self that the runner is not separate from the running. The running is the runner. You can't separate those two. So if you're running in panic, somebody's chasing you with guns or whatever, you, you could say at that extreme point, you reach a point where there is also no self. Right? So if you go into repose or in martial arts, they say that's the ideal in martial arts. You get to the point where uh, Matsuoka Roshi said this about samurais. He said, two samurais, swords in the air, right? He said, if the swords are not empty and the air is not empty and the, and the samurai are not empty, you die. If everything is completely empty and there's no attachment, then you, you might survive because there's no time for any attachment. There's no time for thought. It's going to happen in, in a flash and it's going to be over. So if you think of it that way, you can think the samadhi of action, as they say in the martial arts, is the greatest, 100,000 times greater, million times greater than the samadhi of repose. And they said in Zazen, it's the samadhi of repose. Samadhi means centered state, balanced state, or kind of state that settles in and becomes very profound. But it's the same samadhi. So if, you, if, you're, if you're in samadhi because you're kayaking, or you're in samadhi because you're sword fighting for life, you're sitting in samadhi uh, on the cushion, it's the same samadhi. And as a developmental uh, program, it seems that it's virtually impossible to develop the samadhi of action without the samadhi of repose. So Matsuoka Roshi was consultant to the Karate Association, the police department in Chicago, and he taught them uh, meditation to go with their martial arts training. Most dojos that are uh, not all about winning the fight the, the tournament and getting the medals uh, include uh, Zazen in their uh, program because this Samadhi of Repose uh, Matsuoka Roshi went so far as to say if you do Zazen and, and you know to some degree where it's affected you you can beat a superior opponent because you have the Samadhi and they may not they may have great skills and techniques, you know, but that's not the essence of the martial arts. I think part of the problem is that it comes in a language, too, is that, 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 that English, which is any language, you know, there's a, there's a noun, there's a verb, and there's the object. Um, I see you. Um, it can be assumed that there's I seeing you, but okay. there's actually the scene, and I think that a language distracts us from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from once, that. Once we've learned it, then as a conception, it starts dividing our reality up into what we think are real subjects and objects and predicates and so forth. But as Kodo Sawaki Roshi, the Jiyama's teacher, said, and Okamura quotes this, he said, in Zazen, it is uh, the self, studying the self through the self, or in the original Japanese, self, self, and self. So we could think of it as consciousness, studying consciousness through consciousness, where there's no subject, object, predicate anymore. It's all one. Just the action being the, being the real reality as opposed to the mm -hmm. I or, or the object part. Yes, and this is why Dogen's thought is is called action. His form of thought is action. And if you think about it, thought is always the kind of thought we think is thought is always reflected back on the last moment. We can only take action in this present moment. And as long as we're not distracted by memory by going back in time and just regretting what we just did or worrying about what we did last week or planning for the future, if we can come into this being in the moment, so-called, 
unfortunately become kind of a new age term, but in Zen is real, only real time. We settle into real time. If we can do that, then we can actually take action. If we, uh, we, we take action no matter what, I mean, willy-nilly, and it depends on what, you know, the outcome is, you know, maybe out of our control. But the notion is, I think, if we can be less dependent upon that kind of mindset you're talking about, where subject-object predicate is always dividing our reality up, and we can live in a unified reality, then the kind of action that we can take can actually be conducive to both uh, ourselves and others in a harmonious way. It can, it can actually fit the situation. If, if we're always thinking, we're not even in the present. But unfortunately, language is just based on that. You can't, yeah. you know, there's no way to avoid you know, getting yeah. out of language. So if you talk, then you already... Yeah. <laughs> already. <laughs> well, they say that Buddha was, didn't speak a word because he was able to speak or not speak, and what he was doing was not speaking, whether he was speaking or not. He was using language to point to this reality so that his audience started to wake up and see the reality. Now, that's quite a trick. But if you read uh, some of the sutras, you can see just, you know, yes, a bodhisattva, uh, something like, a, in, I can't remember which one, this Lankavata sutra, I can't remember which one, bodhisattva, if just to save all beings, but no bodhisattva who is a bodhisattva sees that there are any beings to be saved. <laughs> let me put this rug under you, you know, and then I yank the rug out. Let me put this other rug under you, I yank the rug out and put this other rug under you. Until finally you're left with what has to be true. And it, he's, he's sort of taking your mind because he understands mind from his own mind. And he has broken it down to where you have profound cognitive dissonance. You know, and nothing makes sense to you anymore. And that's right where he wants you. <laughs> so this process we're doing to ourselves in Zen is kind of brutal in that way. The well, the difference is, I would say that if you can do that, if people uh, come to practice that way, for one thing, they have what they want. So nobody's trying to get anything out from anybody else anymore. You have what you want, and you you can walk away from any situation because you're fine, you're okay. So that will mitigate a lot uh, of disputes. But the other side of it is if you can learn how to not rely on thinking analytically and so forth on this model, then when you need to, you can really do it. You're really good at it. Because you understand, it's like having a gun in your pocket. Uh, if you have that gun out firing all the time, you can only be so effective because there isn't going to be anybody around you for miles. <laughs> but if you only pull it out and shoot it when you need it, <coughs> well, we become dependent on this thinking mind. Uh, we're taught that as children. That's where all this naming stuff comes from. And so we think that's all there is, and we don't think there's any alternative. Until we start practicing Zen, and then we learn how to unthink, not think, non-think, think, you know, not rely on thinking. And something else comes into play: intuition. And now, instead of thinking about you as you approach me, I'm sort of reading you intuitively and kind of feel where you're at, right? 
that I don't have to think about because you're black. I have to worry that you may be packing you know, and coming after me for some other. <laughs> so yeah, I think if, if, if we had a worldwide mission where people started practicing Zazen under some guidance, because you can go into blind alleys in Zazen easily because you're thinking you know what it is. But yeah, I think it would help tremendously. So you end up with am. There's no therefore. It's going to be difficult to capture these things in words, no matter how eloquent you are. And really, frankly, it's all been said better than any of us can say it. All you have to do is go back and study these masters and see what they said. It's amazing what they've said. It's all there. It's actually already been said much more eloquently than we can. But we, we have to translate it into our milieu, into our current cultural context. And when we run into a ditch, like we do in these organizations from time to time, it's very necessary that we step back and we use our powers of analysis to see what happened, how did we get here, and we don't want to do, go back too far because it's just beating a dead horse, but where do we go from here and how do we, how do we organize better to keep this from happening again? And uh, so, as Dogen said, we use the discriminating mind to awaken Bodhi mind. We don't throw discriminating mind away as if it's worthless. The discriminating mind is what got all of you here. It's what uh, encouraged you to begin pursuing Buddhism in the first place. It's complementary to the Bodhi mind. They're not separate. It's like the, the central vision and the peripheral vision. The two together go up to make the whole vision. So the discriminating mind and the Bodhi mind are like the, you know, lens over here and the big eyeball. What has happened is because of our cultural influences, the Bodhi mind, is, the, the discriminating mind has been sort of expanded and expanded so it goes around the sphere and obscures the Bodhi mind, which now has taken the small place at the back over here, the intuitive mind, the original mind, because we rely so heavily on our ability to discriminate, to get the good grades, get the good jobs, and compete, and so forth, survive. So we completely lose track of that mind. In our meditation, this mind, the discriminating mind, is virtually useless. It can, it can discriminate between, well, that certainly isn't it. I'm just sitting here thinking about what I'm going to have for breakfast. You know, that can't be it that can do that. And so as you learn to withdraw from that and, again, let go of your own opinions, then you could say that, that that starts to move back around the sphere to where it becomes maybe balanced half and half, and they're equal. But then at another point, the discriminating mind is seen to be limited in what it's good for and where it can be used and where it can't. 
and sitting in Zazen here, it's not very useful. And so this other mind comes into play and becomes the predominant state of mind. And the theory is that if you practice and continue, that can become your predominant state of mind 24 by 7. So the, the idea with Buddha is he had this slam experience, right? And he was forever changed. But we know that he went back and practiced meditation again and again and again. And he talked about this a lot to try to clarify it for himself. So we, we don't consider it, we call it awakening, which is a, a process, a verb. It's, it's in motion. And there can be some backsliding. But it's not enlightenment, which is a noun, which is a state that we achieve once and for all. It's not that way. We've, over, we've gone over the time now. So, uh, is there, let's just go around for any closing comments or questions. Start with you, Tony. Okay. Brett? Roger? Terry, you've been very quiet. Why don't you benefit us with your roof? Did I give you a headache? Okay. You're Kyle or Keith? Kyle. It's Rob R O B. Tony. Your name again? Bane. B A N E. B A I N. What kind of name is the Irish? Scottish. Bane. Does it mean something? Let me translate. No. Good thing it's not B A N E. I went to your ancestry.com and Chinese say uh, meetings are the bane of progress. <laughs> and keep. Kevin. Kevin, sorry. Nothing? Okay. Did you get enough for your class, you think? If you want to follow up, I'll give you a card out there. It has my email. Thank you so much for your attention and listening. We close with the four vows. And we can do the acapella as well. Acapella. Beings are numberless. <coughs> I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way unsurpassable. I vow.